The sermon today may be a little odd if you're used to being here in some ways, and maybe I kind of intended it that way, to be that way. Other, so, But if you haven't been here, you don't know. Maybe you say, well, odd is better. Eh, may or may not be. But I'm going to talk about several things about this time of the year that I think are misconceptions or at least need to be explained a little bit to people. Uh, some things about this time of the year concern me because people don't seem to really care too much about what the Bible says about things. But I don't, I'm not going to be negative. The point of the sermon today is not to be negative. I did read an article, uh, I can't find it. I wish I could quote it to you this week about this, um, from this pretty well-known preacher. And he was, uh, lamenting the fact, and he says, starts off by saying, you know, I guess we don't have a shred of evidence in the Bible about Christmas or the holidays and so forth, but he called uh, G.K. Chesterton, one of the famous Christian writers of the late 1800s, early 1900s, he called him a Scrooge because he thought that he didn't appreciate Christmas very much. Well, of course, not very many Bible students did before the 1900s appreciate it very much. But then he went on to say, well, maybe he's not such a Scrooge after all. So I just couldn't believe what I was reading. fellow that claims that he's a preacher and loves the Bible and then admits none of this is in the Bible, then said this guy's a Scrooge because he doesn't like it. It was the oddest thing. Really odd. Now, I'm not here to argue about any of that. I just want to talk to you about some of these things that perhaps are misconceptions. And what concerns me sometimes is that people who people have not read the text of the New Testament about this story of the birth of Christ. They haven't read it or tried to piece it together. What they what they go on is a tradition or more or less the fact that they like it. And I like the holiday this holiday too. Uh, except I didn't grow up celebrating it as a religious day. Maybe that's different than many of you, but I did not grow up celebrating Christmas as a religious day. We just had a family holiday and so forth, and it was great, and I enjoyed it. But we live in where we live. So I'm going to talk about four things today. I think it's four. The date, the magi, who we call them the wise men, the star, and the inn, where I think that there's some interesting things to be learned, things I've been reading about here lately and compiled over the years. But first, let's go to the text where most of these things appear. If you have, if you got a Bible, you can turn in it or read with me up here. It's in the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 2. This is the only account of what we call the wise men or the star. It's the only account and all the things that you hear, all the traditions and things you hear about this all have to come from here if they're going to be biblical because there's no other information about it. Are they? That's the question. So it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the first thing you must notice about this, which we'll come back to, is this account says, After the birth of Jesus, they came and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They didn't come to the manger that night. Okay. That's the first thing you're going to see about this. And it's more clear later. But they came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now in Herod, this is Herod the Great, who is a great builder and, one, and a, not a very good man. But when Herod the Great 
the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. This means if there's a man been born king, Herod thinks, well, that means I must not be king or I might not be king very much longer because the one's been born the king. And when Jerusalem hears about this, they're agitated like, what's going to happen now? This is a big deal. What's going to happen? But and he and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, this is the prophet Micah, Micah six, but excuse me, Micah five, I believe it is, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now you also find this reference. Uh, I mean, go on a little bit further, verse 11, I should say. And when they had come into the house, not a stall out in a yard somewhere. When they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now what that's about is that Herod decided, a little bit later decides, I want you to go kill all the young children, all the young men, babies, in Bethlehem under two years old. And so... People have deduced from this, I think probably correctly, that it could have been as long as two years since Jesus was born and he's still there in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are living in a house now and they're there in Bethlehem. Up to that time, at least he was giving or give some leeway there because he said two years. He wanted to know when you saw the star, when the child would be born and so forth. So he takes two years. Okay. Then you have in Luke 2 this reading. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth. He was That's north, but he calls it out of, up there, because it's north of there. Uh, and it's also up a hill, I should say. He went out of the city of Nazareth, into Judah to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now we're going to come back to that part of the story a little bit later on. There's no statement here at all about wise men or stars or anything like that going on in this first part of it, in the story in Luke. It doesn't include those things. So you have to kind of piece things together. 
What I first want to talk about is the date of this. I, and I just want to, maybe this helps clear some things up for you. Because we hear these A, ADs and BCs and so forth, and I think a lot of people get confused about that. If you're talking about something that happened BC, you have to go back, you have to count backwards. So something that happened in 100 BC happened closer to us than something that happened in 200 BC. Once you get on the other side of that divide of AD and BC, something that happened in 100 BC is further away from us than something that happened in 200 BC. Then you got the problem of counting centuries. The 5th century is really the 400s, just like the 1900s were the 20th century. We're living in the 21st century, but it's the 2000s. So you got that problem that really confuses people too. There are reasons for that. But this, the BC means before Christ and AD means Anno Domini, the Latin meaning in the year of the Lord. So your BC means simply before Christ. That's what you see there. And then you have these other, this dating that we live under now, A.D. It doesn't mean after death, as you might have heard. It means Anno Domini, which is Latin for in the year of the Lord. And so all of our dating is done like this. And then now recently we've seen people switch to uh, this system of B.C.E. and C.E. They can't, they just can't bring themselves even in Latin to acknowledge that Christ is Lord just like now you get calendars, the first day of the week on modern calendars is Monday, and you get to choose sometimes if you want Monday or Sunday as the first day of the week. Well, I always choose Sunday because the Bible says that's the first day of the week, as we call it, so that's good enough for me. But the BCE means before the common era that we now live in, and CE means the common era. So you'll see those used in some kinds of writing. Now, how did this happen this way? Well, I can tell you, before the Middle Ages, um, there was no common dating system. Rome, when I was studying Latin in high school uh, for a long time, we know that Ro- Romans dated their uh, calendar from the founding of the city of Rome, which was uncertain, but, you know, 500 B.C. or so. They dated all their dates from the founding of the city of Rome. It'd be the similar in Babylon similar in other nations and empires. They had their own dating systems to keep track of the years. It's like going to Indiana and trying to figure out what time it is in Indiana compared to here. You know, they got their own time schedule like everything else there. But anyway, uh, they don't keep the religious holiday of daylight savings time in Indiana, apparently. In some parts anyway. But in any event, this was all, as it were, straightened out by this monk named Dionysius Exegus, who calculated all these dates in about 500 A.D. He was a mathematician, by the way, which makes it all interesting. He had written, he was well known for treatises on mathematics and all this kind of stuff, but he tried to calculate these dates to course, to make them correspond to one calendar. And it wasn't accepted for a long time that he, that his system was, well, it wasn't widely accepted. It came to be more and more accepted, uh, as different people began to use it. And then everybody began to count their dates, their years, based on this system of A.D. and B.C. that this fellow came up with in 500 A.D. And that's a long time after Christ, uh, but he tried to synchronize the dates. And he used the date, for example, of Herod's death, which was around a lunar eclipse that we know of from history. There was a lunar eclipse in 4 B.C., 
that they think, and Herod died around that time. We mentioned this in Bible class and being eaten of worms and so forth. And he died around that time. And, uh, that's the other, that's another Herod. But anyway, they, they, um, I got that mixed up. Sorry about that. They, he dated that time and said that's the zero mark, as it were. Now the problem isn't figuring this out. You got zero to one. That's one year, but we count it as one. So there's a missing year in here anyway. It's just like the, the change over from the millennial. Some of you are old enough to remember the millennial change in 2000. <laughs> and everybody was worried about the, the Lord coming in the year 2000. Well, the actual millennium change didn't happen until 2001. I hate to tell you, but he was, you know, it was all messed up because people forget that zero year in the middle. But apparently he made a mistake because when they did more research, they found out that this lunar eclipse happened in what we would call 4 BC. And that's when the other records or some of the Roman records would more sync up with 4 BC. So most of us will say, most scholars will tell you that uh, Herod died in 4 BC. Most Bible scholars say that Christ was born then sometime before 4 BC or right around that time. So we're at least three or four years off in our dating. And that's why people, I had a debate with a fellow years ago, a gospel preacher who basically said the world was going to end the year 2000 and all these reasons from different dates and so forth. And the problem was I tried to point out to them, you're already four years off. 1996 was probably the year and it's already past that time. But that didn't seem to phase his uh, discussion of 2000. If you're going to count by years, 2000 years, you're off immediately in dating these things. So what's significant about the year 2000? Well, nothing really, because God didn't give that time. It's being 2,000 years. That's what we've calculated, and there's no way to really calculate. So we we can't really know what year Jesus was born beyond a certain limit of accuracy. Now, that should tell you something. If it was important to know what year Jesus was born, I guarantee you God would have revealed that in some way that we could figure out what year he was born, much less the day of the year that he was born, which God didn't reveal to us either. And so if we're going to let the secret things belong to God and not build doctrines upon them, we have to respect that on some level. And that's what concerns me, not about common people who who like Christmas and so forth. That's not the problem. I'm not trying to be uh, mean about that. I don't mean that in any way. I'm just saying people that should know about what the Bible says and proclaim to know what it teaches should be accurate about those things and should care care about what is accurate about those things. Now then, what about these wise men? Got to move along here. What about these wise men? They're often called magoi. In fact, the word that's used in the Bible is magoi, M-A-G-O-I. That's plural of magi, M-A-G-I. That's one. Magoi is plural. Or the magi, they're often called. In English. And we think, we get the word magician from that. They weren't magicians, most likely. They were probably astronomers of that day. They would call themselves astronomers. We would call them astrologers, probably. Or wise men who understood signs and seasons and things like that. That's where they were from. We don't know that much about them. And here's the reading again, that after Jesus was born, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Said, where is this one who's born the king of the Jews? How did they figure this out, you see? But they were seeing, behold, we have seen his star in the east. Well, that only references where they were, you see. 
Now, when they heard the king, they you go back, it says, they departed. Verse 9 says they start, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. I think what this phrase in the east means, if they're where we, they couldn't be coming from the west to Jerusalem. There's only about 50 or 100 miles from the wall, from the Mediterranean Sea to Jerusalem. So they couldn't have been coming from the west. There's nothing over there except water. They had to be coming from the east. So what they mean by this is we are, we are from the east and while we were in the east, we saw this star. That's what it means. We saw his star in the east because that's where we were when we saw it. And so they followed this star and they came and it came and the most interesting part about this star is that it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw it then, they rejoiced. And so they came into the house and gave him the gifts and so forth and received a sign. Uh, so who were they? Where were these wise men? Well, let me say some things about them that the Bible doesn't say that some of you have been singing in Christmas carols for the last month. Don't they start Christmas carols? It used to be December 1st. Now it's Thanksgiving. I think I took a picture this year in Walgreens back in September of Christmas items in September. It starts earlier every year. So maybe you've been singing these Christmas carols about the three, we three kings of Orient are, uh, and things like that for a while. But the Bible doesn't call them kings. Let's just look what the Bible says, or doesn't. It doesn't call them kings. It calls them wise men or magi. They're not kings. King, a king is a different person than a wise man. So when you sing, we three kings of Orient are, the Orient being the East, you're, you're really singing something about a tradition. And so they've become over the centuries in Catholic tradition, other t- traditions, these kings. The Bible never calls them a king. Uh, they, it doesn't say that they came from Persia or India. It doesn't say where they came from except in the East. It could be what we would call Assyria, could be Babylon, could be any number of places that are to the east of of Judea. But that's where they come from. And yet people have made up, there's monuments and cathedrals built in all these towns to these people. doesn't say that there were three of them. It says they gave three gifts. We're going to stand on that. That's exactly right. But in fact, historically in tradition, Greek Orthodox tradition and Catholic tradition, at different times there have been three, there have been, there's whole Churches built of the four wise men. There's one whole big long legend and all the books written about the 12 wise men. You didn't know that, did you? That there's 12 wise men? Because that's not the tradition that makes a nice simple story for us. But that's historically, people have included that there were 12. One reason that they say there were three, by the way, and there are several different interpretations of this, is because they represent the Trinity Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Okay. Where would you get that in the text that we read? You wouldn't. A lot of things can't, a lot of things could be true, but you or I have no way of knowing if that's what God meant at all, because he, if he wanted us to know they were three, he would have told us. If he wanted us to know their names, the Bible doesn't name them Balthazar, Melchior, and Caspar. And I think Caspar is the one who's Ethiopian and black, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe one of the others. They have three races represented. Traditionally, there are three races, European, African, and Asian, uh, more or less, and, and, you know, 
by Asian, I mean, would include Palestine. But we don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We don't know that they're even these three. It doesn't even say they rode camels. You got the camels at the at the manger scene. Got to have a camel at the manger scene. But there's no camels in the Bible here in the story. Or it doesn't say they went on a long journey. Doesn't even really say that they were following this star the whole way. They saw the star. And in the east, they saw the star. Then they went to Jerusalem. What could that mean? Well, we're going to come back to this a little bit more. What you what it probably means is when they were looking at the night sky, and these people were experts in the stars, they noticed some kind of celestial event in one of the constellations that represented Judea in their map of the sky. The map of the sky corresponded to the earth, so some of these constellations had corresponding references to different kingdoms and different places, and they saw a celestial event in the sky that represented Judea, and they took it to mean that this was a king was born because of the way the way the constellation was, what phase it was, a king was born. And so they said, we need to go to Jerusalem. So they went west. They went west to get to Jerusalem following a star. Well, the star's not in the east. It's going to the west if you look at geography. So the whole, the whole thing is confusing because people are trying to make up something that isn't really there. But it doesn't say that how long they traveled. It doesn't say they were following the star the whole way. It says the star told them where to go and they got there. Now when they got closer, they could see where the star was pointing to this place. It does not say they came to the manger. In fact, they came to the house. Now there's different, we'll come back to the manger. I don't want to get involved in that right now. And it doesn't say that their bones are now enshrined in a cathedral in Cologne, France. If you want to go to France, go to Cologne, you can go see the bones of these three kings. Of course, that didn't happen until the 1200s, quite a long time afterwards. You're looking puzzled there, Sandy. They got that the Catholic Church have all have relics. They have the tears of Mary, the breast milk of Mary. They have the blood of Jesus in a vial. They got enough bones of this and that and the other to make up 12 men out of one apostle, you know. Um, so who were they? Well, here's what one fellow says about it. I think this is maybe getting to the point. Why is this in the Bible? Now you can ask that question. Of all the things that we can put, why did Matthew put this in the Bible? And it's in the book of Matthew. Matthew is a book to establish that Jesus Christ is the rightful king. That, that's what his book is about to a large degree. His gospel pre- shows Christ to be the rightful king. King Herod who was not the rightful king, was the king at that time. Wasn't even 100% Jewish. And this, his gospel presents this picture. So what could this story mean? Vandenek Eichel's scholar's theory is based on exploring the range of meaning attached to the Greek word magoi and the use of the term in ancient narratives. From these sources, Vandenek identifies a theme of proximity to power. So too for Matthew's Magi, they, their presence in the home of the infant Jesus and their offering of gifts served at once as proof of the power of the newborn and of the illegitimacy of Herod's rule. So this Van, Van den Eckel is not a Christian believer, but he's a scholar. And he says in reading these narratives and the use of that word, this is always associated with power. And so when these fellows come to this event of the birth of this king, it's saying this is the rightful king and we recognize his authority. 
as the king of the Jews. Now that's why Herod was so upset about it that he went out and slaughtered all these children soon after this. Is because the Magi came. If, if they had not, if the wise men had not come to him, there wouldn't have been a slaughter of the innocents that took place later, killing all these children in Bethlehem. And Herod wouldn't have reacted the way that he did to this event if these men had not come because he knew what they meant when, what it meant when these fellows came. Now what about this star? They came to him and, and they were saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then you saw, you see the reference here in verse nine of Matthew two, when they had heard the king, they departed and behold the star which they had seen in the east went before them going, going west apparently until it came and stood over the, over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, over the centuries, Biblical Archaeology Review says, commentators have suggested this star was a planetary conjunction. When This happened recently, where Jupiter and, and um, Saturn merged together in the sky briefly. It was a big event astrologically and, and for astrologers, and you could see it. You could see the conjunction of the... I think I tried to take pictures of it. Some say that it was a comet or a supernova where a, a, a star being born explodes and gets big and then recedes back to its small size, that kind of thing. However, a lighted object high in the sky guiding someone on, on earth below to a precise location simply makes no sense. And I think they're right about that. I think the idea of a star or a comet guiding someone to a precise location is not necessarily something that we would be able to see easily. But, on the other other hand, we don't understand how they viewed things. We have a certain view of, of the world, of astronomy, of the skies. Most of us can't even see the sky where we live at night. It's so light around us that we don't see anything but if the moon is full or something because the rest of the sky is too light. But I can guarantee you, you go out someplace where it's actually dark, like where I live in Illinois out on the prairie, and you go outside at night when it's cold especially, and you look up, you want to hunch down. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You want to hunch down because those stars are so bright and and they're so right on top of you, especially the Milky Way, just a whole band of bright even different colors going across the sky. It, it is incredible if you've never seen that before. Well, this is what these people were looking at up in the sky. And that's why they it, it was every night they saw this. It was not something like we would experience. And so they had mapped it all out. They understood its motions. The planets, for example, they knew that there were four objects in the sky that didn't act right. All the, the stars, constellations, they could track their motions and they had charts of all of that. But these four objects... They, they just did a, they did all kind of funny motions in and did loops and retrogrades and all kind of stuff all through the sky. And they called them planets. Wanderer. The word planetos in Greek means a wanderer. Someone who's not walking the straight path like everything else does. So they called them planetos. That's where we get the word. But these people understood this. Over the centuries, people have suggested this, but, uh, this other scholar, he says, however, no matter which astronomical phenomenon is suggested, there's one massive problem. Nearly all modern science-based solutions ignore how ancient people thought about and examined the sky. 
We only think of it the way we think of it. So this star doesn't make sense or we don't see how that could happen the way that it did. An eclipse on a specific day, for example, may have indicated the death of a king. But the presence of clouds covering a particular side of the moon could have changed the king to which the signs referred, and thus whether it was bad or a good sign. More signs could then be layered on top of these, creating even more complex results. So he says these wise men did not operate according to any sort of modern principles. Rather, they would have interpreted the sky in a culturally specific way, reading the sky as we would read a weather forecast. So he said it's more like a weather forecast, which means can vary very specifically by the day. So these men see this object in the sky, whatever it was. And like I said before, the constellations are in the sky. You and I don't even recognize them. Most of the time we wouldn't be able to point them out at all, but they could. And they would see the event happening and that, and this this particular planet was in retrograde, and there would be clouds on the moon at that time when this happened, and they would say, okay, this is about the death of a king in Judea, or this is about the birth of a king in Babylon, and they would know this, and that's what they that's how they interpreted these things. And so these men are responding to what they would view as a forecast of events based on what they observed in the sky happening in the constellations or the sky that related to Judea and a king in Judea. And they start going that way. Now what we have here, whatever it is, is God you... Here's what I think about what this means. I'll tell you what I think. Now since this is the, what you've been waiting to hear. When Jesus was born in the manger, God sent angels to speak to the shepherds of Israel because his son would be a shepherd. And King David, this this child's ancestor, was a shepherd. He sent angels to speak to the shepherds in the fields to announce to the children of Israel that this king had been born. Okay. Later he sends these Gentiles using their system of understanding, God gave them a sign that they would understand in their way of thinking to come and honor this king, the true king. And so we have here in this the mission of Christ to come for both Jew and Gentile, to save both Jew and Gentile in one event. And he tells each of these two groups what he wants them to know in the way that they would understand that fits their heritage and culture as it were. Now, what I can see about this, and there's much more to say, say it is that I'm going to present you one crazy thing here, and then we're going to move on. But this fellow named Colin Nickel argues, he wrote a book called The Great Christ Comet, which they say, great, I never read it. It's on my reading list when I get really old and bored. Colin Nickel argues that the object in the night sky that led the Magi on their journey was a comet. This is a modern book. A comet could have guided the Magi to Jerusalem, then Bethlehem, and finally to the house. When the star appeared to stop over the place where the Christ child could be found, this was the comet descending towards the far horizon. Only a comet following a very specific trajectory could have done all that Christmas stars had to have done. Now, what if you what he means is over a period of time, this comet's going to appear in the sky, and over a period of weeks or months, it's going to slowly move across the sky. Doesn't go. That's a shooting star. Comets can be seen and, and their light fades in and out and so forth. And what they're saying is as this comet approached going over the horizon, and they keep following that, they're going to eventually run into this, into Bethlehem. At first they came to Jerusalem. 
And so, so where is this? Well, then they looked at the star again. The star, star took them on toward Bethlehem. And they followed it. And when they kept walking, they find the manger where the child is. Oh, excuse me. They find the house where the child is. And I'm sure they're asking people, where is this? Where is it? And so here's a newborn baby. This is the one. So here's how he says this happened. Now, there's another explanation which makes perfect sense to me, but I don't hear these people saying it. See, we got this problem in the Bible. Every time, the, every time a miracle happens, people say, well, let me see how I can explain that so it's not really a miracle. So God sends manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. Well, that's this plant blooming and blah, blah, blah. God sends quail. Well, that's because these quail on migratory paths got blown off. And, or, or God, there's an earthquake. Well, that's because the seismic table shifted and there's an earthquake. Okay. God can use all. And the thing is, the Bible's God does use all these natural phenomenon to do things. He's in control of the car. He can drive it the way he wants to. He made the car and all of its systems. He can make it work the way he wants to. And so he can do these things. It's more, more than something that I think. It, there's no need for an explanation here. I don't have to explain how this could have happened astronomically or some other way. Because the Bible says this star guided these men to that place. And I don't think that's all that's required of me to believe and understand. It was a miracle on that level that God put this in the sky, hasn't appeared again. It's a, it's a one-off, a de novo event they call it in Latin. A new thing that's by itself. And that's all that's... But they never give you the option to say, well, you know, God did this, it's a miracle, let's, let's move on to something else. What do you think, Gary? Is that about right? It's about pretty much what we, he and I were talking about this earlier. Huh? Yeah, how to heal the blind man. Yeah, well, it was the mud. What's in the mud? Well, we'll go look and find some minerals in mud that can help eyesight. Well, we can sell a bunch of, we can sell a bunch of stuff, maybe some new aromatherapy stuff on the miracles in the mud and, and healing blind people. Anyway, you get, see, this is what humans do with this, these things. They just go whoosh off the other end. If you believe he healed the blind man, he can make a star that will take him where they want to go. Yes. And, and these guys were good at looking at this. We're not. All right. What kind of place was this in? I-N-N. Oh, I remember when we first tripped to Florida when I was a little boy. There was no interstates. I'm pretty old. And we drove from Ohio down to Florida, down to West Palm Beach, and and back roads and little towns and... And my dad was always trying to find a place to stay for us at night that we could afford and it was safe and it was hard. Then after a couple of years of this, he said, there's a new thing. I don't know how, he says, they got this thing called Holiday Inn. And he says, they're all the same, so they don't cost too much. So we're going to stay there because they were cheap then. So we went to Holiday Inn. We, he, he loved it because it was he knew it was safe and he could afford it. And then years later, he said, oh, they got some new thing now. It's called Eight Days Inn. Every time you can stay at this place called Eight Days Inn for $8. Did you all know that that was Days Inn's first name, first business name, Eight Days Inn? Because it cost $8 to stay there. He was thrilled. Now, of course, later they changed that to eight fifty and $9. And now it's $89. So, you know, but they had to change the name. All well, they got rid of the eight in front. But we have this system of... Hotels and inns, and so we think inn, we think it's a hotel. There's nothing like that in Bible times. 
There were military outposts of the Roman soldiers called munitionaires, which the soldiers or officials could stay out of at every 20, 25 miles, where they could stay when they traveled and be replenished. And they were, there were some private places that people had, like uh, the other name for it is when the, when the fellow was beat up on the road to Jericho, or from Jerusalem to Jericho and the, and the, and the Good Samaritan, he took him to an inn. Same word, it's, it was just a, not a, excuse me, a different word. It's a place where it was a private place. They had a very, very bad reputation. And not everybody would stay there because they were dangerous and you never knew what it was going to be. But there was no place like that. And so people had to do something else. Now what you hear today, here's how this is thrown about today. Since people have political motives for this. Mary and Joseph were homeless people because she was pregnant outside of marriage. Therefore, they had been they had been thrown out of society and they were truly homeless. And they got to the inn and this capitalist innkeeper wouldn't even let them in. He was so mean he wouldn't even make a place because he was a dirty capitalist and so they, were in, they had to go live with the animals. Which I'm sure some of the more people that love animals were against because why would you bring a ba- you know why would you bring humans in with animals you're gonna you're gonna you're going to dif- uh, going to have to disinfect these animals because humans were in here I mean I'm just they're all always going to object to something but that's the picture that's painted today we have this homeless family this mean innkeeper won't let them come in no room in the inn that's not what this means you you will not find a Bible commentator or scholar who will tell you that that's what this story means. In fact, once I've read even this week, several over and over again say, this is not an end like we think it was. This is not about them being turned away because there's no room for them there. That's not what this story is about. And Dwight Longenecker, who's a, a commentator and scholar, he says, providing lodging for travelers became one of the characteristic ideals of Jewish people. Well, you see this all the way back early in the book of Genesis with, with Lot and Sodom and so forth. Given the Middle East's strong culture of hospitality and loyalty to family members, Joseph would have naturally sought shelter with family, not in some squalid brothel or tavern, you see. Joseph went to this town and he sought refuge, sought shelter with his family. That's exactly what happened here. So Luke uses this word, this word for in, elsewhere. It's katalumna. Katalumna. And when Jesus tells his disciples to find a room to celebrate the Last Supper. So Jesus says, go find us a room to celebrate the Last Supper. Well, the translators put upper room, don't they? Why is it upper room? Well, there's a reason, because that's what this means. Some kind of thing built onto a house, usually upstairs. That's the same word that's used for inn. So why doesn't it say that that the disciples, Jesus, go down to the holiday inn and rent us a room? Is that what Jesus did? Tell the disciples to go to the holiday and get a room to have the Last Supper. And that isn't all what the picture is. But that's the same thing. Here is translated upper room. While it was common to add rooms, and the reason upper is there, because usually they were built above another structure. The most frequent reason was the expansion of a family. A newly married son customarily brought his wife to live in the family house. The father, ask me how I know that that's what people do. A father would set aside a room within the house for the couple or build a marital house on the roof. And so Luke uses... The, oh, sorry, they duplicated that. 
Simple village houses at that time had but two rooms. One was exclusively for guests. That room would be attached to the end of the house or be a prophet's chamber on the roof. The main room was a family room. At the end of that room on a lower level was where the animals were kept. Often the lower level would be a cave. The main room being built in front of the cave. So you got this hillside. They have a cave. They can, they can store things, keep them cool in the cave and protect the animals and protect the animals' feed. So they built it next to this cave. Between the cave and the main room was a stone wall, a half partition where feeding troughs were carved into the stone surface. So there was a stone wall. They carved these feeding troughs into the surface between the cave and the other room and so forth. Animals were back there. They fed them there and so forth. So that's what Jesus, where Jesus was born. He goes to Jerusalem. All the main rooms in the houses of his relatives are filled. So they said, well, take the upper room or take the, take the room. Sometimes they were below because they had a cave uh, where the animals were behind there and you can go stay in there. That's what the inn is. This is not a story about social injustice. It's not a story about being rejected. Now, it is a story about the Son of God being born and put in a manger. Now, other people say the word manger means something different. Well, I think mostly it means a feed trough of some kind. It has a broader meaning. The manger can also be a temporary little building or a booth. It could be that. But you see them, they, they sell them at the feed stores. These little huts almost things would have a feed trough in there, roof over it for animals. Could be something like that. But the way this was used at this time is mostly like this. I don't know what that means. It does mean in this story, yes. Jesus was not born in a king's mansion. He was born to a very poor family, an ordinary family. And how do I know Jesus' family was poor? Well, because eight days later when they went to the temple to have him circumcised, the law said when you brought your son to be circumcised to give him back to the Lord, you had to either bring a ram or if you were poor, two turtle doves. Guess what Joseph brought for his son? Not a ram, two turtle doves were brought for Jesus. So we know his family was poor and the priest accepted that offering because of the poverty they lived in. So this is the story. Jesus was born in an ordinary way to an ordinary family in an ordinary circumstance. And that's why people didn't believe who he was. God did this to confound people. He did this to fool people who wouldn't look beyond. He was born in a town that was his hometown, but he grew up in a town that wasn't his hometown to fool people. What good thing can come out of Nazareth? Well, you know, you have to look deeper than the surface to get the truth. And that's why I'm always encouraging you to read the text, understand what it means and see what's there and not just read the surface or hear, believe what you hear about what's being said. We're going to close with this. I'm sorry it took so long. Galatians says in general about this event, now when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son to your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The fullness of time came, and God did things the way he wanted to do them. And we should be thankful and glad and rejoice in that. Well, our time is gone, far gone this morning. I appreciate your attention to all these things. But we're going to sing a song now in closing. That our brother is selected, number number 103, come to Jesus. If we can help you by praying with you about a difficulty, a concern, a worry, or a sin, anything like that that you'd like us to pray with you with, let your brothers and sisters help you.
you come right to the front. If perhaps this morning you want to be baptized into Christ, come to the front also. We'll baptize you into Christ. You can begin life anew, if you will. Can we help you? Let's stand and sing.